Welcome to this recording of Experience Makers Lunchtime Listen-Ins. These were a series of talks that discussed the impact of COVID-19 on the property industry from a customer experience perspective. We hope you enjoy listening and if you have any questions afterwards, please get in touch through our website at www.experiencemakers.com. Welcome to today's uh, Lunchtime Listen-In. My name is Harriet Jones, I'm the producer at Experience Makers, which is a growing network organisation for the property industry. And our goal, and kind of the goal of our members, is to promote um, the importance and really champion customer experience and all that that entails in the industry. And we think that in the wake of coronavirus, this is even more important, and this is really what the uh, overreaching topic of the listen-ins has been. So let's turn to, to today's discussion. We're looking at a kind of big topic going beyond sort of addressing individual assets to talk about how attitudes towards the environmental well-being and societal role that real estate plays may change following coronavirus. And if that wasn't enough, I also want to pick the brains of our contributors on the economic or business case for being good, how kind of having values translates to value in an economic sense. And this is a really important topic for experience makers. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our contributors for today. So can we just kick off by, um, if you could like to introduce yourself, who you are and a bit about what you do. Sabri, would you like to kick off? Sabri Marsawi. Uh, been working in the retail property market for coming up to 17, 18 years or so now. And more recently, over the last couple of years, asset director at Edmonton Green Shopping Centre that caters to uh, close to, well, actually just over 11.2 million uh, pre-COVID. All right, that's a fantastic introduction. Thank you. Oliver, would you like to give us some background? I'm Oliver Hudson. Hopefully I'll be able to share some perspectives from a kind of non-traditional real estate background so uh, i started my career working for a social media company before moving into prop tech about four years ago so i'm an associate director at built id and my role kind of works um, specifically on the rollout of our digital community engagement tool give my view so as a company we're really passionate about uniting communities and decision makers in genuinely win-win scenarios we look to combine sort of interactive polling technology with with targeted digital campaigns for for reaching an audience and ultimately looking to hear from a a much wider group than than might typically engage in, in planning and for us the core challenge is how do we integrate community priorities within development decision making and i'm sure there's going to be a discussion today about a range of environmental social and governance perspectives but for us as a business our, our focus is on the the s the social element and and so how do we create social value by empowering communities and, and giving them a sense of ownership over decision making so the give my view tool is is a practical example of, of how organizations can implement ESG and, and social value considerations within their decision making. Fantastic, thank you. Finally, Gemma. So I'm an anthropologist by training, so a little bit of an anomaly in the real estate industry, but actually developed or established something at my company, Human City, in response to inquiries around social value at a point where it was, it, it was a lesser known uh, concept. 
So at Human City, I help asset management and development teams who are struggling to translate social value into financial uh, returns. I kind of very much align with Savory and um, trying to provide them with strategic advice as to how they can design and operate their asset and sometimes how they financially restructure it to align with social value impact and, and to deliver uh, impact for both business and, and society. Could you explain a little bit about what the last few weeks have been like for you or, or how it's changed the way you're working or, or what's, what are the kind of big things taking up most bandwidth or affecting the communities that you work with? Sabri, would you like to maybe kick, kick off again? Yeah, of course, more than happy to do so. I mean, Evan Green's my baby. Uh, so you can imagine that when the uh, lockdown announcement effectively came through on the, on the 23rd of March, it was kind of, right, okay, how are we now going to find a way to continue to keep this scheme open trading to ensure that the local community can still access the essential essential goods that they need? I mean, I think it's fair to say that actually we, like probably most of the uh, the property market could see something was coming and something was coming quite quickly. Uh, so we worked very collaboratively with our managing agent. Uh, so we worked with Ashdown Phillips down in the scheme uh, and we'd already kind of mapped out what a plan would potentially look like. But there's, there's no doubt that my role fundamentally changed overnight in that it, all of a sudden it became absolutely critical, priority. What can we do to ensure the shopping centre remains safe, open and trading as much as we possibly can, how do we ensure that we are engaging and continuing to engage with our retailers? Uh, and I think one of the, the successes which has allowed us to continue that ongoing dialogue is, um, I don't speak to tenants when I want something. I always speak to tenants. So actually, all of the, effectively, the hard work that we've put in over the last two years, two and a half years, has been about building those relationships on the ground root level now. Whereas for those of you that are in property management and asset management, will know that the, the old school strategy very much was, you do a new lease and you turn around and say, I'll see you in four and a half years when we discuss a lease renewal. But that doesn't work anymore. It's all about day-to-day -day interaction. Uh, and the key was to make sure that whatever we were doing was very much aligned with what the retailers could continue to do. Uh, and I'm glad to say we're still doing pretty well in that we've managed to keep the scheme open. It is safe. We've still got security, cleaning, everything's still happening. It's just not quite as busy as it, as it used to be. But with that comes a significant amount of responsibility um, to us. Uh, and I think one of the other things that uh, I wanted to, to change the focus on quite quickly was about how can we, as a responsible landlord, assist during this time period, not only to our retailers, because let's be honest, that's a given. They pay us rent and they expect us to be able to support them. But what about the other local community groups that get forgotten about sometimes? So, you know, again, you'll see the, the reels of, uh, various different social um, uh, events and, and groups that we've been working with. Uh, very quickly, we, we started working with the local authority, uh, Enfield Council. But not only that, we didn't think, oh, let's just stick some money over there and leave them to it. So we've started speaking to all local community groups, whether it be the primary schools that have stayed open, whether it be Age UK, uh, you know, the churches, the homeless charities that are there. What can we do to help during this critical time? We've done that. We continue to do it. I think we're, we're up to 20 or 21 different uh, organisations we've helped already and, and it will just continue. And I think one of the really important lessons that we need to all take away from this point, it won't change even when COVID goes away. We should always be doing this because actually, to, to go to Gemma's point, there is a residual benefit for us doing the right thing all the time. And, and if we ever need any proof of that, 
it's now because the feedback we've been getting from all the groups, Edmonton Green, you've stood up and you're being counted. Thank you. And I'm going, great, let's carry on. Fantastic. Oliver, would you like to um, just give a bit of an overview of what's, what's it been like at Build ID and what you're hearing or seeing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I echo sort of a lot of the sentiment Fabrice mentioned there in terms of some of the key themes and, and sort of um, trends that we were seeing emerge pre-crisis are now being accelerated and there is a growing view that there's lots of elements from that new normal why should they go away once the, the pandemic does I think for us we uh, as, a, as a business operating you know the community engagement space and, and, and digital community engagement specifically so, so clearly in a time where you know social distancing where, where that's a challenge and in-person meetings we've seen a, an enormous demand for that. But I, I don't think it's just because of the, the inability of sort of town hall meetings to, to take place. I think as we've seen kind of how companies and, and brands have been responding to the crisis generally is a kind of a very human-centered approach. And, and the bottom line for businesses is that people care, right? People care how you treat your employees, how you operate in the communities that you work in and Kind of you know organizations are being actively judged by what they're doing now and there are changes happening m many of which are sort of latching on to trends that were there at present and sort of one of the topics i'm sure we'll discuss later today is kind of a broader understanding of the obligations of, of real estate industry and kind of what value uh, means and, and i think we're definitely seeing lots of positive strides in, in those directions Fantastic. Thank you. Finally, Gemma, could you offer your perspective on what you've been seeing over the last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think similar to the other guys, I've been uh, helping companies really kind of understand what their value proposition is moving forward. I think that that's, you know, particularly in the context of retail, that's really, you know, the, the trends that we've been seeing in terms of a, a transformation in what should be being offered in a kind of contemporary retail context or, or and, and another context like residential um, value proposition, I think, will evolve and kind of increasingly evolve coming out of COVID-19. So keeping on top of what that might look like, you know, based on um, how people are responding to this pandemic, you know, the various kind of risks now and, and trust issues that might be emerging in the context of consumer need. But actually, one thing I didn't mention that um, I've also been working with local authorities on how to embed social value into various business plans and delivery programs. So just a piece of work I was just finishing as COVID hit was helping Lambeth Council its inclusive growth strategy um, and, and embedding some social uh, value objectives into that. And of course, that's now become an economic recovery strategy. So actually, how even more today can uh, private firms and, and the public sector work together you know through and, and build partnerships and what are the investment opportunities that are emerging out of this that you know really aligns with what councils have to offer i think that would be increasingly important in order for council then to get a decent revenue stream to get everyone back on their feet again so it sort of seems that one of the trends of coronavirus is i suppose thinking a bit more wider about the demographic of who who the ultimate customer is or who or who the person the people that they affect are and also maybe the more traditional consumer the people who are kind of more directly involved with renting or using using the buildings paying to do so that actually they're they're thinking a bit more deeply about what's going on in the world and what they desire and want to see in the places where they, they live work rent is is also developing so do you think it is possible that we will see real estate be defined less among a long use functions and more about buildings that are, I suppose are, support health and society 
or are we being optimistic at this stage? Does anyone have any? I think that is kind of one of the essential questions to, to answer. I mean, we could all sit here and say sort of a lot of the perspectives that we might have, but is that kind of, will that be echoed in the wider real estate community post-crisis? And of course, the answer is we don't know. But one of the interesting pieces of research I, I saw recently from the Centric Lab on the topic of broadening our understandings of what buildings are required to do beyond simply house people and things is, you know, they're looking at drawing direct comparisons between the quality of our built environment and, and negative health outcomes as a result. So if you look at one of the key trends that we're seeing in the UK in terms of the spread of coronavirus, it's the disproportionately negative impact on poor ethnic minority communities. And the Century Lab will draw a really interesting comparison in looking at, you know, these are groups that are also disproportionately likely to be in low quality homes and, and urban environments in terms of air pollution, noise pollution, lack of ability to access green space. And those additional stressors are making them more susceptible to disease. So I think when we look to the future and, and what some of the impacts might be of, of the pandemic, seeing obligations connected to health and well-being as nice to haves, you know, our core is, is, is you know, to do whatever we're, we're doing. And if we can tag on something about it being a sort of healthy space, that'd be great. I think it's going to become um, hard to, to justify that when clearly the buildings that we live and move between has such a dramatic impact on, on our health. Yeah, and the, the kind of growing, growing awareness of that, I suppose, as a result of coronavirus. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the Centric Lab because I think they have very clear scheme or criteria about how they measure the success of their places to do in neuroscience and health. So I suppose in a, in a way you're coming from evaluating or, or strategizing around space in different perspectives and you must have your own criteria around what makes a successful place. Could you maybe describe some of the criteria that you see making their way onto ESG strategies? So I don't know if you want to start, and I saw on your LinkedIn um, a quote where you said, to quote, old, old school philosophy and techniques for asset management just don't work anymore. We need a new approach. So what are the, some of the criteria you, you've been looking at at Edmonton Green Centre? Yeah, for me, I think that quote was said in a status of we can't think of our relationships as transactional anymore. You know, our futures um, between tenants and landlords are, they're intrinsically linked. You know, we need our retailers and tenants to be successful for us to be successful and vice versa. So for me, it was more about saying, look, let, let's just change the way that we manage these relationships and subsequently build these relationships. But before we can even do that, we've got to make sure that you know, the old school design of a shopping centre with the, you know, the, the dumbbell effect and an anchor at each end and the magnet store in the centre trying to flow the pedestrians through the scheme. That's not enough anymore. Uh, and, you know, and we went through that, that point where, oh, well, the, the key to this is leisure, you know, just stick a cinema in there and stick a bowling alley and all of a sudden everything will be okay. Well, we've kind of gone through that phase as well now. So it really does come back to what is placemaking all about? And I know it's a, it's a term that is used and thrown about quite a lot within our sector, but in its most simplistic form, all it actually means is making sure that you've got an environment for people to live, work, shop, look after themselves, they've got public spaces, all in one place. And that's what effectively we, we need to see a lot of our, our, our shopping centres and town centres across the country need to start moving in that direction. Short term, it might work, but what's the longer term 
impact upon that scheme and the potential value of it. You know, the number one priority that's coming out and it, is that people are saying the absolute critical thing for me now is all about safety, which goes back to all the stuff that we've been doing about social distancing in one way and signage and cleanliness. Um, you know, 51% of the people plan to spend more on groceries actually as the lockdown eases. So I think we're going to see a return or a continued return actually to having those big weekly shops that we may top up once during the, you know, during the week. But I think where we've become accustomed to, we'll go shopping three or four times a week. I think we might start to see those kind of things change. Um, online has clearly boomed during this, uh, during this critical time. But, but those retailers that have already been geared up to be able to trade on an omni-channel basis haven't been as impacted as they could have been. But we need to be ready as landlords and property owners and responsible property owners to be able to support our retailers and, and to be able to, I guess, transition our estates to be able to deal more flexibly and reducing as much friction as possible. And I think the last big change will be on public transport. Some of the data that's coming through is saying that it's never going to return to the use or the levels that it used to be, or certainly not in the uh, short to medium term. So we're going to have to, uh, not only as consumers, change how we live and, and you know, operate as, as human beings, but also how what us working in the property sector, how we're going to be able to deal with those kind of effectively changes in consumer behaviour. Thank you, Sabri. So, Oliver, Sabri mentioned there the idea that safety is going to become a, a big kind of a wider criteria and interest in the property industry and also the relationship between online and, and offline. What about... Um, what you're seeing from Build ID about different kind of criteria around what makes the place successful. For us as a business, our focus is is the S and and um, creating social value by integrating the priorities of the community. So that's kind of our focus. I mean, in its simplest terms, we're we're on, we're asking people, you know, how they feel about where they currently are, you know, what they'd like to see change, and once it has changed, understanding how do you feel about it now, and that's kind of successful places are, are ones that people want to be in and the way that you can do that the easiest way you can do that is to, to ask them before you sort of put a spade in the ground so I, I definitely think that's crucial to to building back better as people say putting communities at the heart of decision making but, but what kind of outcomes are we are you uh, are you seeing communities look for more employment opportunities better education health and well-being what's the kind of overarching i suppose topics that you're that you're working towards yeah, well, I think to be honest, in the short term, it's it's sort of we've seen a number of our clients take a step back from the sort of active polling of, of communities related to development because you know, it's not felt that it's been an appropriate time. So I think what the most likely themes post this in terms of engagement levels and what people are going to want to understand about how communities are responding to buildings is, remains to be seen. But as a general point pre-crisis, the things that people really cared about were you know, sustainability, were affordability and health and well-being is, is of crucial importance. I think when we look at value, you know, one of the most striking tales of, of lockdown has been how people have craved public space and, and you know social interaction there so certainly even pre-crisis that was always a really important issue to people that we pull understanding you know how can they integrate you know sustainable design practices greater green spaces and how that impacts on well-being generally finally Gemma do you have anything to add around the kind of criteria that you're seeing being built into the social value strategies that you're working on one thing we've I mean the retail context one thing we've been doing is is diving deep into those partnerships 
So one of the uh, concrete examples that um, Vicar Lane Shopping Centre in Chesterfield was is, is one shopping centre that's really been taking seriously understanding retail in the context of its local context and, and the dynamic of a town with specific sets of needs. In the context of Chesterfield, there was a, a need to engage local uh, young people in, in, in the town who, who were inclined to go off to Sh uh, Sheffield to find jobs. Well, Chesterfield was, was experiencing a net loss of young people and talent out of the town. And of course, it's an old market town. And so you had an aging population there and, and a kind of an aging offer in, in as much as the, the market was not seen as kind of presenting any kind of value for, for young people. And so what uh, Altirix did, who acquired Vicolane, was, was, was really kind of tap into that student community and work with the local college to design uh, spaces that therefore were information and careers drop-in spaces for students there that, where they could tap into the SME community and actually get uh, experience through engaging with small and medium-sized businesses who are themselves looking for young talent. And also um, the, working through opportunities for those young people to get apprenticeships and, and training with, with local retailers. So actually it was really through engaging with the local college and understanding what the needs were and how to meet that need that the retail, that the shopping centre could become more than a shopping centre, actually could begin to come, become something like a community asset. And the exchange for Alteris was they could work with the student community um, and students could help operate some aspects of that asset, you know, like the community cafe or, or some kind of um, drop-in space, a community bar, um, and bring down operational costs for, for, for that client over time. So there was a kind of win-win there, and I would encourage um, asset owners to think about that exchange relationship and really kind of really think about tapping into the local context and the local need. I think that is very interesting because I think there's a tendency perhaps for the ESG strategy to think of as we've been discussing a bolt-on and a kind of nice to do it from a sort of charity aspect but what you've been talking about there is actually the potential value proposition absolutely additional value proposition that, that your ESG value strategies can have and I suppose the other flip side to that is actually the value lost if you don't do that kind of thing and, and you, absolutely I don't know if you've got any sort of more thoughts on that Sabri particularly um, the only way to ensure that high streets don't remain clone high streets, which have effectively no difference, is we ne definitely need to look at things from a completely different perspective. There is no one fit for all. It's just impossible to be able to deliver that. So we need to make sure that we cater for all age groups uh, and all effectively uh, requirements. Um, but there's also a massive uh, social benefit for us to be working with local entrepreneurs, you know, people who want their first opportunity to start a business. Uh, and we've seen some successes at Edmonton where we've had some traders that have gone from a market store to two to three and then into full inline um, shop units. So it proves it works. And for, for the next year for us is about how can we leverage that? How can we work closer with colleges, local authorities for those that have just never been given an opportunity to be, to be successful? So that's something that uh, I'm working very hard on, will continue to work very hard on um, over the coming months and years ahead. And I think that's, that's a lot of the conversations. So that's kind of where, where we often come into the conversations of how you engage those groups. And I wonder if, if kind of to echo a lot of what um, Gemma was saying there and sort of really focusing on who your user groups are. And, and Sabri, the conversations we as a business have been having with organizations like yours and, and other shopping centers, and you use the term at the beginning, as you transition from shopping centres to town centres and move away from uh, places that have been historically predominantly or almost exclusively retail to that kind of blend of, of uses, a number of the kind of um, shopping centre providers and, that we're talking to 
are sort of as you transition and look to well, what what does the town centre or the shopping centre of the future what are, what is the balance of those blend of uses fun starting as Gemma indicated by first going out and asking those groups directly is is, is I'm sure you'd agree crucial to that transition and that journey and that's that's one thing that you know as I, as I said and I only touched on it very briefly we've owned the scheme for nearly 18 months or so now and we've spent a lot of that time talking and engaging with local groups and I think that's the way it has to be looked at it's not actually particularly what the landlord wants it's what the tenant retailers want the prospective tenants want and, it, and it's what our local demographic wants because we can build something but they're not going to come just because we build it or provide them with x amount of tenant mix what actually do you want to see there let's sit down and let's engage with the various different groups uh, we've been doing that over the last six seven months and we're going to continue to do that over the next six or seven months while we actually try to map out what could edmonton green look like in the longer term Okay, so it seems as if everyone's in, in kind of agreement, actually, the importance of kind of widening the base of the customer, engaging, talking to your communities, not just the immediate customer. But what, are, what do you think are the other things do you think are stopping ESG being seen as kind of a centre strategy to the well-being and viability of, of, the, of the property in- industry? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people have often seen ESG as, as being sort of slightly soft and, and Unless, core, I think the, the example that relating to sort of health is a good um, point about why that that maybe won't carry as much weight post crisis. For me, though, one of the most interesting points about ESG, and in particular coming back again to the work we do in generating social value, is is how crucial having a recognition of social value and looking to create it is to generating brand loyalty for businesses. So having a conception, a broader than just financial conception of, of values really helps from a commercial perspective to actually drive brand loyalty both internally and externally. So externally reflecting, it's what your customers care about, right? That's what they're telling us. Customers care about these, these broader conceptions, issues related to environment, well-being, etc. But actually employees do too. You know, it used to be said and, and still is true that Having great office spaces is crucial to retaining and, and attracting top quality talent. Nowadays, though, having a clear social mission that stretches beyond the pure financial is crucial to attracting and retaining the best talent. So that kind of internal brand loyalty as well. So when organizations are looking at, well, is this a soft issue or is this actually a, a core issue? I think one of the really important points is that the brands that are really going to survive and, and thrive are those that have shown themselves to really get this stuff and understand that this is what my consumers want, this is what my employees want. Reformulating our understandings of value ultimately uh, are not just going to sort of build a more equitable and and sustainable society. They're also building better businesses as well, right? Mm -hmm. Having an understanding of that is crucial to to building a successful brand that that people care about and that that can outlast this crisis and others. I totally agree. Brand brand loyalty is is absolutely a key kind of uh, return, I guess, on on the investment you might see from ESG. And I think uh, one of the main barriers is, of course, that that particularly going going back to residential, and we haven't really touched on it, but but residential, it's a little bit more difficult to drive through this, to home this kind of ESG focus vis-a-vis retail. But in the context of residential, there's a kind of a focus on the tenant um, and, and value for the tenant. And absolutely, Oli, is, is, is put the nail on the head where actually the value for, for the tenant is, is now very little different from, from the value to the local community. And actually, I think uh, many young consumers now, individuals who are looking for new homes, 
are very much focused on community and interest and community benefit. And so actually, if a brand can demonstrate it's already doing that and, and, and a step ahead in, in terms of thinking about ESG, it's, it's a win-win. And so that's part of the proposition now is, is to what extent for the tenant are you providing that local experience? Are you providing a contact there or a base for more than just you and your fellow residents, but actually for the community itself? And I suppose to go back to this question we asked at the beginning, some of the barriers of, of why some people might be sitting there thinking, I don't get it, I'm just going to sit tight on my asset, wait until things are better again and just can't be dealing with, with all, all of this. What would, you, what would you say to them? I would say get ready for the banks to come back and take the keys to those assets <laughs> if you sit still. We cannot stand still. I, I can't stress it enough. As asset managers, as landlords, as property developers and property owners, we need to take responsibility now. All COVID-19 has done is brought it into perspective today that if we don't do something, we are just going to continue to suffer. And I think, you know, one of the barriers to a lot of people's thought processes, how do we immediately produce return on any investment? And that's quite a difficult question because some of the stuff that we're talking about, there is no return today. So it's, it's about having the, the foresight, uh, you know, the vision or having the right t- senior team in place to say, Yes, okay, you know, we are going to invest X, Y, and Z to start to transition uh, incrementally over time. But you need that vision and you need that buy-in right from the top to be able to make sure that your assets and your property is ready to survive in the long term. Because otherwise, and we've seen, you know, the high streets across, across the UK that stood still for too long, you know, and, and all of a sudden there's void rates of 14, 15%, and in some, some other places as high as 21, 22%. I mean, that's catastrophic. How have we ever allowed, we collectively as a society, allowed ourselves to get into that position? Um, And for me, the answer is simple. We didn't move fast enough. We didn't see what was coming. We sat back and we thought, no, no, I'm okay for now. It's okay. It'll be fine. The problem is everybody else around you that is making changes will be ahead of the game. And then long term, your asset will maybe go from there to there. I think the other thing as well in terms of barriers is that perhaps some of the um, sort of considerations we're, we're speaking about some of those values can be a little bit hard to pin down and assess I think places like the social value portal who have developed and begun to develop coherent mechanisms of, of taking those quite hard to pin down metrics and giving them actual you know financial value I, I wonder be interested to get your perspective on whether you're seeing the kind of landscape uh, changing in terms of organizations feeling a competitive pressure to start doing this because their competitors when it comes to things like planning applications and brand building are demonstrating their value beyond the financial are you seeing that shift as as the ability to quantify value um, across ESG considerations becomes clearer and more easy to understand it's still a little discretionary so actually the, there are I mean this is what the conversation I was having earlier is that there, there, it's, it's still difficult to benchmark because there are so many different ways of measuring social value or return on investment as, as you'll know so there's some so it's still varying partly because client requirements and stakeholders differ and hence uh, those stakeholders themselves need different kind of metrics local councils will need one investors will need another etc so the water is quite murky still but that's not to say we shouldn't do it and so it shouldn't strive together to find some metrics that, that have common meaning and that we, we can use, begin to use to benchmark and compare and at least have a conversation. 
is there anything that makes you a bit nervous or are there any pitfalls that new companies that aren't used to kind of thinking in this more broad broad way fall into or should property companies who are, who are really wanting to get get to grips with ESG and understand how to do it properly what do they need to be you know mind mind yeah I mean obviously we've, we've outlined opportunities and there are significant opportunities in thinking about ESG and I think we're all behind that the challenges are, you know, going back to metrics and, and measures, there's a challenge of falling into the trap of it turning into a tick box mechanism. So you've got a list of things you need to deliver on activities, say, so thinking about local employment, for example. If you're a company that, that wants to deliver on ESG principles and ticks the box of local employment and or, you know, procurement of kind of local organisations, that's you done. It's, it's more than that. I think we've all explained and explored how there's a depth to thinking about social value and a meaningfulness to it. And it's absolutely possible to do it in a, in a, in a rigorous and effective way. But you have to, you have to take the, that bottom-up approach as well as obviously having those frameworks and metrics to, to give meaning to what that bottom-up uh, approach looks like. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much.